Welcome to the NPS MedicineWise podcast, helping health professionals stay up to date with the latest news and evidence about medicines and medical tests. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Caroline West and I'm a GP and a medical advisor for NPS MedicineWise. I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. I'm coming to you from Gadigal country. I'd like to show my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Now, the last couple of years have been especially tough for young people living with mental health issues, disruption to work, social activities, education, chances to travel, see family. Today, we're exploring mental health in young people from an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspective. Joining me are three people with extensive experience in this area, two health professionals and one with lived experience. I'd like to welcome to the show, Rebecca Davison, JB Maney and Sarah. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Can I start off by getting each of you to introduce yourselves? Tell us a bit about where you're from and, and what you do. Can we start with you, Rebecca? My name's Rebecca Davison. I'm a doctor doing GP training. I'm an Aboriginal woman from Sydney. Um, I grew up on Darawal land and have connections to Darawal and the Yuan people. Well, thanks for being with us, Rebecca. It's great. And Jamie, can you take us through your story? Uh, yeah, hi. I'm a Wiradjuri Ngunnawal woman. I am a practice nurse at the Orange Aboriginal Medical Service. I'm also a sexual health coordinator. Fantastic. Well, I'll be looking forward to hearing your thoughts as we go through the podcast. Thanks for being with us. And Sarah, to you. Hi, um, my name is Sarah. I am a young person. I'm a young Wiradjuri uh, woman. Fantastic. And you're going to be talking to us today from the perspective of someone with lived experience? Yes, yes, I am. Fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing with us today. I know the last couple of years have been pretty tough. That's what I alluded to in the intro there. And that's across the board in the community, but particularly for young people and particularly for young people in rural and remote regions and also from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds. Sarah, can you just take us through what it's been like for the last couple of years? Speaking directly as a young person who was really in a good place in their life when all this stuff started to happen, it's difficult, I would say. <laughs> it's been um, very interesting seeing how isolated you are so far regionally and how putting people in isolation in already isolated areas has such a negative effect on young people. Mm, I have heard that uh, many times and, and that's been one of the very difficult challenges of this time. If I can turn to you, Rebecca, you've been working with many Aboriginal young people during this time. What's your sense of it all at the moment? I think it's been difficult for everyone and particularly young people. There's a lot of resilience that I've seen in the young adults and kids that have come to see me during this time. And I wonder if they even are aware of the impact that all the changes have had on their life and their mental well-being. You know, they just come with the same normal issues or concerns that any young person would have. And they might not even realise how significant these last couple of years has been on their well-being. They just know that something's different and hard. I think you're right. I think it's going to be hard to know what the impacts will be until it plays out a little bit because there's a sort of short-term impacts and then the, the longer-term ones, of course. Jamie, what's your take? I agree with Rebecca. 
a lot of resilience in these in these young children or young kids and because it's become so normal for them yeah I don't think they even realize like um, Rebecca said the impacts that COVID has had on them Mm. because the mental health stuff has just become normal for them. It doesn't even have a label with some of the kids. They don't even know what's happening. That's really interesting. So when you say it doesn't have a label, do you mean that there's a pervasive sense of like distress or stress or how how does that actually present? They don't know what mental health is, you know. It's not really until we start to unpack it that these kids realise that there is an issue. And is it hard to even talk about mental health? Sarah, if I can go to you, I mean, what do you think it's like for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when it comes to actually talking about how they're feeling or how they're going? I think a lot of it has to do with how open you and your immediate support network are. If you have had an experience where mental health was very openly spoken about in your household or in your community, I find probably a lot easier to talk about. But if you've grown up and had that experience of everything's fine, get on with it, get over it, you're less likely to be able to reach out to a GP support service, a nurse, a friend, a family member. And in that case, if you haven't had that education you haven't had that ability to know what mental health is which a lot of people actually don't realize some of the things that they're experiencing are mental health related then no no one can actually put those into words and actually go and and discuss it Mm, yeah it can be hard jamie you talk to a lot of young people in your job as a nurse and i imagine a lot of them are coming in for sexual health issues but it gives you an opportunity about expanding the conversation yeah do young people find it okay to talk about how they're traveling from a mental health perspective some of them will open up this all depends on you know the day and the approach sometimes i can get them to open up but sometimes i really struggle because there's so much stigma attached to the mental health. Some of the kids are embarrassed to disclose what's happening at home or inside themselves. You've mentioned stigma. Are there other things that really crop up as being challenges? Why they're not disclosing? Big thing, particularly in in Indigenous families. You know, if if we want to go back in history and talk about stolen generation, a lot of that talk goes on in the home when, when we're younger about, you know, they can come and take you. Yeah. Docs will come and take you and that goes back to, you know, those times. That's a massive barrier for our children not wanting to disclose to health professionals because they're worried about someone coming in and taking them away from their parents. That's incredibly important for us all to keep in mind, isn't it, when we're having those conversations? Yeah. And how do we how do we change that so that we can build trust and so that young people can talk about what's important to them. I think just being honest, hey, honest and letting them know right from the jump that anything you say, you know, anything you disclose is not going to cause any harm or any trouble to your family because this stuff is sort of embedded in us and it's an automatic, oh, but what if I say this, you know, what's going to happen? What's the repercussions? Rebecca? I would say it's it's not even just looking at the history. It's something that's still is occurring. I think most, if not all, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people would know someone who has been affected by removal of children from from care and placed in out-of-home care. I certainly did growing up. It's, It's still a very real fear. 
Rebecca, when you're actually talking to young people and you're trying to build that sense of engagement, because mm. engagement's everything really, isn't it? Like without that, you can't get the next conversation yeah. happening and you don't get buy-in and nobody wants to come back because they're not feeling comfortable. How do you as a GP actually build that engagement? I find chatting to them on a level that's comfortable for the patient, finding some common ground, whether it's about sport or hobbies or movies, that sort of thing, just anything to kind of build a rapport, make them feel comfortable. So at the very least, they just come back to see you again, Mm. which could be the opportunity to then dive into the mental health, doing it gently and at the patient's own pace and what they're comfortable with. Mm. I know as health professionals, you know, I'm a GP and a lot of my training was about sort of creating boundaries and barriers and not revealing too much of yourself. And, you know, I don't think we did enough about that idea of finding common ground and common interests. Jamie, how do you think we work on that side of things to actually find the stuff in the middle that we can each relate to? I think that's an area in which we could improve. Like Beck said, it's building that rapport because we want those patients to come back. The way I usually approach those situations is take the clinic hat off and engage with these patients as if they were a family member or an elder. But, yeah, a bit more on a human level instead of so clinical. Yeah. Sarah, nobody can see us on this podcast because it's obviously just the audio, but you're nodding your head there. Uh, You're obviously agreeing with what Jamie says. What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like if any person, they don't have to be young, if they have ever gone into a clinic or a a doctor's office or hospital, anything like that, and they've been met with that, here's our list of credentials that you need to meet in order to be diagnosed or be considered or be thought of in these categories with that very white coat, yes, no, it doesn't work. It puts up that protective barrier that like young people have they really just want someone to talk to them on a human level I think that's the most important thing no matter what area of health it is particularly with mental health and well-being I think that they just want to be made a connection with they want to feel important they want to feel important for a few minutes they want to know that the person that you're talking to cares about you and in that moment you are the most important thing to them And I guess it's also about finding about somebody's life story, isn't it? Like about family and where somebody's uh, been raised and I guess the bigger sense of family in the community. Jamie, can you give us a sense of what you take someone through when you're trying to discover a bit more about someone and build that engagement? Lose the judgment. That's my first thing. I do not judge anybody. I try to let the patient know, not that it's normal to be you know, going through stuff in this space, but to sort of let them know that they're not alone because a lot of our community is going through mental health and trying to um, let the patient know that it's okay to speak. It's okay to engage and let people know what you're feeling. And the levels of distress are very high. I know that the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare that sort of pulls together some of the data on this has shown that about two-thirds of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are experiencing levels of psychological distress, which is very high, and it may be infused with their bigger experience of what they're going through in life, meshed in with other health concerns. But Mm -hmm. that means that pretty well, you know, the majority of people that come in through the door to see you for some other matter are going to have a concern around mental health as well. 
in terms of looking at some of the factors that may be protective for mental health conditions that actually help people. You've talked all of you about resilience. What are some of those factors, Rebecca, that you feel are protective that you also may explore in a consultation with someone? The connections that people have can be really protective and working out who that support system for them is first up is really helpful, I find. For many of the people that I see, it might not necessarily be their parents. It might be their auntie or their grandma who's their confidant or who's there for them. Things like being involved in sports and attending school or even like part-time jobs, those things that give someone a sense that they're worth something, that they're contributing, I think are really important in terms of being protective for someone's mental well-being. If I can ask this of you, Jamie, if I can go to you, what do you think are some of those protective factors that that help keep young people well? Yeah, relationships, the important relationships, school friends circle, but yeah, those important relationships in the lives, you know, whether that be a, a grandmother, a best friend. I find that elders play a big part in Indigenous kids' lives, it'd be their nan and pop. And a strong cultural identity is also central? Yeah, Yep, absolutely. Unfortunately, some of our kids don't have that strong cultural identity, which in turn, I find that those ones are our troubled children that have lost that connection to where they come from. You know, that's their identity really can play a big part in um, these children, yeah, going down a wrong path. So from a health professional's perspective, it's obviously then incredibly important that we explore, you know, a sense of somebody's identity and what's important to them within their culture and their community, their connection, their relationships, all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And just even by asking them the question because, you know, some of the kids, they know the country in which they've come from, but it gives them a sense of, like Sarah mentioned before, when us as professionals, we ask those questions. Where are you from? Do you have any current connections to your country? Those patients feel like, yeah, You want to know. You really want to know. You have that genuine care. I'm going to echo what the professionals have said, really. It's really important to have such a strong connection in those close relationships that you keep with yourself. Um, For myself, I was very lucky to have quite an incredibly strong connection with my mum. So for me, she was that sort of grounding point Um, and my nana. They were two of the most important people to play a role in in my mental health journey personally. Hearing everybody say school, I feel like when you hear that as a young person, you kind of laugh a little bit and you go, well, like, it's not really that important. But something that I noticed was when I would be in really dark places, I would miss school. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't want to go. There'd be no point in me going. If I went, I was just going to go home early anyway. But I feel like once I sort of hit those later years of high school in particular and I started attending school more regularly, I was going at least four days a week. That was when I saw probably the biggest impact in my life because I was finding these connections with people at school and they were constant people in your life, people who just don't go away. Yeah, having that that sort of unconditional support and knowing somebody's always got your back is very powerful, isn't it? And if we sort of go into this sense of the importance of having some of those difficult conversations, 
I know there are some conversations in mental health that are really hard to have, particularly around how somebody's really travelling about their, their risk, for example, or if they're having very dark thoughts, suicidal thoughts. And it's been shown that safety planning makes a really big difference to helping young people stay safe. What's your sense of the value of safety planning, Sarah? I think it's probably one of the most important things that you can discuss with a young person. I would take it back a step and remind young people that they're not in trouble for feeling these ways. I think um, when you start having those conversations about negative thoughts, intrusive thoughts, harmful thoughts, a lot of people get very defensive because they unconsciously think that that's not a good thing you know I'm not supposed to be having these thoughts they're going to judge me because I'm having these thoughts I'm in trouble now removing that stigma of just because you're going through something at the moment and you're experiencing these negative things you're not in trouble unfortunately it's something that you're going through and we want to help I think safety planning is such a, an interesting topic as someone who's been on the opposite side of it, <laughs> been the person who's had to sit down and have those discussions in a more uncomfortable setting. I think it's something that needs to be approached in the way that Jamie speaks about. It's having a yarn, it's sitting there and it's talking about what you're comfortable with, what concerns you have, what the concerns of the people around you have. And having that integrated conversation between people who are experts and people who know what they're talking about, but also with yourself and you need to feel comfortable and honest with who you are and and with who they are and that connection to be able to have a safety plan that's uh, factual to who you are and one that is actually going to potentially save you. Yeah, incredibly important to help keep young people safe and gives you the opportunity to really look at some of the the triggers and also some of the strengths, reasons to live and and a support network if if things are are not going well. It's great as a sort of template, if you like, for how to have a discussion or a yarn, as you say, about, about some of those things. Never comfortable, but sometimes even acknowledging it's not comfortable can be fair enough. And when it comes to management, Sarah, obviously we talk a lot about this this thing called shared decision-making where the person really has the central place in terms of deciding what's going to be done in terms of management because management could take all sorts of shapes and forms. How do we perhaps approach that and get young people's involvement with management from that perspective? I think it's having their input from day one. If a young person comes to you in a crisis situation or just wants to come and talk to you about not feeling so great it's taking into account them at the forefront and it's having their input through every single decision that gets made whether or not it is hey you've said something to me that kind of concerns me a little bit I think we should investigate this further is there a GP that you like to see something as simple as that opening the wavelengths for them to be able to bounce back with conversation and having their input and their AOK, if you will, is probably the most important part in having that shared decision-making. I don't feel like people who are having mental health difficulties or struggles or whatever they're feeling deep down, I don't think pushing information at them and just 
telling them, well, now we're going to do this and now we're going to do this and now you have to do this, again, makes young people put those barriers up where they don't want to continue talking about it because they don't feel like they're at the forefront. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mental health doesn't start when the crisis starts. It's not when someone comes to you and they're at their riskiest or they're at that point. Mental health starts with the really little stuff, struggling to get out of bed, feeling a little bit crappy, feeling a little bit down on yourself, stuff like that. I think that we need to acknowledge that side of mental health and not just the chaotic side when somebody is at their quote-unquote worst, for lack of a better word, when you're at your most concerning, shouldn't it be when everybody starts to pull into action? I think it should be the very, very start. And I think that's how we stop a lot of the mental health crises that um, affect young people. When it comes to mental health, I'd like to go to you, Jamie, on this. It's so often those little things that pop up along the way that perhaps health professionals need to be aware of. You're seeing young people all the time. How how do you approach mental health from that opportunistic point of view? Most of the time they won't come in presenting for anything regarding the mental health. I usually touch on that subject throughout the consult. Yeah, like I said, majority of the time they're coming in just for something acute and it's not mental health, but I have a tendency of, you know, asking other are they feeling okay? Are they having silly thoughts or feeling you know, yucky. And a lot of the time I'll get a yes. And then I sort of follow on from that. Yeah. Because I guess that engagement takes time, doesn't it? Like It sure does. It's not done in one consult. Yeah. 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 That trust. Yeah. Building that trust. And I find it does take a little bit to build that trust, but on the patient return, when they start engaging, then you know that you're starting to make a bit of traction in regards to the patient. And then, yeah, I sort of let them do the talking, reflecting back to what Sarah was saying in regards to allowing the patient to drive their healing because they know what's going on inside their body. I think, you know, as professionals, we just we can just help guide and support. But if they're not engaged in that journey, if we don't engage the patient in that journey, well, the steps won't be done on behalf of the patient, you know, for themselves. Drive their healing, that's a very um, good way of summing it up, I think. And, Rebecca, what's your sense of that drive their healing sentiment that Jamie's just talked about? I totally agree with the, you know, needing to get the patient on board in terms of their recovery plan and journey to wellness. It's not even about getting them on board. It is that shared decision-making It's so important around mental health for the plan to be informed by the patient. They are the expert in themselves. They know what's going to work for them. I always give the patients the opportunity to tell me what they think is going to work, you know, what's going to be helpful. When you were last well, what did that look like? What were you doing then? And from that shared decision-making perspective as well, you know, I think it was Jamie before saying, or, or Sarah, I can't remember, but, you know, not telling the person what to do. You have to do this. You have to do that. I think our job as health professionals is to give them all the options, show them the menu of what the potential things that could help include, the good and the bad on on each of those and and let them decide what's going to work for them. 
And that can include options that are lifestyle-based, community-based, perhaps pharmaceutical sometimes. Yeah, definitely. That's the whole range. So I always tell all the patients kind of the range of options from the psychotherapy, lifestyle strategies and interventions and medications. I think so that they know what the spectrum is. I'll also give my opinion and what I think would be appropriate. Medication isn't necessary for everyone. Sometimes it can be helpful for a short time. Sometimes people need to be on it longer. I'll give my opinion, but definitely letting them know all of the options. And I guess if you have a chat to somebody, you've engaged with them and you have a sense of their life and you're worried about their safety, Jamie, how important is actually putting together a structured safety plan? Very important because in the event that our patients don't have anyone to reach out or have someone to see in that instant when they really need to be seen, yeah, they could always refer back to a safety plan that, you know, has been um, done previously. But, yeah, we want to keep them alive in a sense, you know. We want to give them some sort of self-worth. But, um, yeah, a safety plan is quite important because if their head isn't working and they're feeling like they've got no option, well, they're going to take the not so, how would I say it? Yeah, they take the hard road in a sense, yeah. So safety planning is quite important because, like I said, we, we want to keep them here. Yeah, it's one of those areas where that's of utmost importance, isn't it, keeping young people safe? Yes, yeah. Suicidal thoughts are very common when people have low mood, young people in particular. And, you know, as a GP myself, I've found that sometimes having those difficult conversations actually pay dividends because somebody breathes out and goes, oh, thank goodness I'm allowed to talk about this, you know. Yeah. It's on the table so I feel as though I can be supported with how I can manage manage this rather than just keeping it to myself, keeping it a secret, keeping it from my family and friends. Yeah, it's very important. Sarah, from the point of view of what you've discovered about yourself and your mental health and what keeps you well, what have been some of those elements that help you there? I would say the first thing that keeps me well is knowing that I'm not unwell. I'm not broken in any way. What goes on in my head isn't incurable, if you will. I think that was probably the first thing that happened that was the step towards feeling more complete and and feeling genuinely better was having people who listened to me and reassured me that this wasn't something that I was never going to bounce back from, that if you can be nurtured and be supported and you have that ability to take in all of that and listen to the professionals as much as sometimes you don't feel like they're helping, that would probably be the first thing. And then the next was actually building my strategy of how I was going to push through some of the difficulties that I was facing at the time. Um, which for myself was my incredibly low self-image. I quite literally hated myself in every sense of the word. So it was rebuilding my whole sense of self. So it was finding things that I genuinely enjoyed and wanted to do. And then just following on with, okay, well, now I actually feel confident a little bit. I feel like I'm not, you know, the worst thing. How can I now take that out into the world and how can I continue to nourish that and then it was finding other things to do with my time rather than just sitting there and wallowing 
or just sitting there in a pool of your own thoughts. It's finding those external things that I could physically get up and do. Those were probably the most nourishing things that I experienced. I love that sense of nourish. That's a wonderful word to really capture this sense of empowerment with mental health in terms of your journey. So thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing your story. It's always hard talking about mental health for many people. And I really appreciate you sharing your story today, Sarah. It's wonderful. Thank you. What are some of the other interventions, particularly from the lifestyle point of view, that you find have been really helpful with young people and their mental health, Jamie? The connections, the eating right, the sleeping right, because it all adds to the decline in their mental health if these areas aren't managed properly. Sleep is a big thing, especially in this day and age, um, the technology and whatnot. The kids tend to stay on the technology a lot. Their, their sleep hygiene is not very great. So, yeah, all those areas are, are very, very important and also plays an important part of keeping them safe as well. Rebecca, what sort of things do you go through in terms of lifestyle? Talking about hobbies and finding out what the young person, what their likes and dislikes are, what they used to get joy out of if the joy is gone now and kind of reminding them of those lighter times, I guess. I find it helpful to get them to write down the pleasant activities, you know, so that there's a list sitting there. Like Jamie said, when the brain's not working properly, it can be incredibly difficult to think, oh, what's a nice thing that's going to make me feel a bit better now? If they've got a pre-written list, you just look at the list, pick one and go for it. I always go through, you know, nutritious diet, the idea of sleep hygiene. Not one person gets out of my consulting room without a discussion on sleep hygiene because it affects so many it can have such a flow-on effect to everything else in your life you know whether you're sleeping too much or not sleeping enough it, it has its own implications on your ability to function and the brain's ability to concentrate as well as exercise that idea of just any sort of physical activity I find for myself as well and feedback from other patients is that connecting just to, to the land, like getting outside, walking on grass in barefoot, going for a bushwalk. It's rejuvenating. For some people, if they're not from the area, like me, I'm, I'm a coastal girl living out here in Orange, getting back to the beach and being on country is another non-medicine, non-psychotherapy strategy that is really useful for people. And, and sometimes I think it's hard for us to know exactly what's missing, but we just feel a sense of discomfort or loss and not really know why. So kind of raising these things or giving suggestions of, of these things can be helpful. And then I find that the patients will come back with, you know, 10 better ideas than I had because start their brain working and thinking about the things that they know will be nourishing for them. Jamie, in terms of mental health, and challenges for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. What do you think are some of the things we need to keep in our mind? Listen to really hear them, not just listen to respond. Really hear them, I think, is most important. You know, these kids, all these patients, they want to be heard. Very important to hear. Rebecca, from your perspective, what do you think we should be keeping in mind? There's a sense of a shared experience among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. But it's also really important to remember that 
we're not all the same and everyone's story and experience is different and individual for that person. We were talking before about connection to culture, which is incredibly important, but not all people might have that because of of events in the past that have happened. So like Jamie said, kind of listening to to hear and in a non-judgmental way. And what about the sense of also focusing on not just what's making us unwell, but more focusing on what's keeping us well? Jamie? Yeah, because that's what we do as professionals. We sort of look at the bad stuff, you know. Let's focus on the light instead of the dark. And how do you talk to someone around that, focusing on the light? Well, whatever makes them feel lighter, whatever gives them joy, like Beck was saying earlier, let's just focus on the good stuff rather than the bad stuff. Then that also aids in the healing as well. I find if you spend a lot of time focusing on the negative, you sort of start to feed off that negative energy, that that negative stuff. You start to live in that space. Yeah, focus on the, on the positive stuff and think something that makes you smile. And Rebecca, how do you weave that into your consultations? We as a people and a culture are so resilient. Just you know, with everything that's happened with social determinants that are making some people's lives really difficult. It's nice to remind young people that they're surviving. They have a 100% rate of getting through every difficult day because they're still here. And they might come with some concerns about their behaviour or feel bad around what they're using to help cope. But reframing that as still a, a strength of being resourceful enough to, to find something that keeps them surviving. I guess it gets back to that sense of having a, a strengths-based approach where you really draw upon somebody's strengths yeah. within their own individual story and within their community and put a framework around their experience that makes sense and gives them hope. I think it can be very empowering for young people to hear that, particularly from their GP where there's a power imbalance to hear from your GP that you're strong and there are great things about you. It can be empowering and and really motivating towards, you know, their journey to recovery and wellness. Well, that's a great note to end on. And I've really enjoyed our yarn today. It's been fantastic to get a sense of your experience and your stories, Rebecca, Jamie and Sarah. It's been really special having you today on the NPS Medicine Wise podcast. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Carolyn. You're very welcome. And if you'd like any more information on this podcast or some of our consumer resources on young people and mental health, you can go to our website at nps.org.au. There have been no conflicts of interest declared for this podcast. My name is Dr. Caroline West. Bye for now. For more information about the safe and wise use of medicines, visit the NPS Medicine Wise website at nps.org.au.